Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. Every week we look at a new book connected with Africa that is particularly interesting and interview the author. In this programme, I'm talking to James Brabazon, the author of My Friend the Mercenary, a remarkable book that is part memoir, part story of a journalist and part account of first a civil war and then a failed coup. The African backdrop takes us from Liberia to Equatorial Guinea to South Africa and many points in between. And the book is a cracking read. I hope you enjoy the interview. Uh, with me here opposite a, a table in a, the spring sunshine in an office high above Westminster in, uh, in London is James Brabazon, the author of uh, My Friend the Mercenary. And it's a, it's, it, it's a strange book because it's a, it combines several things. It's a memoir. It's a book about uh, journalism. It's a book about a very, very strange relationship which led to James almost getting involved in a coup. And the second part of the book is all about that and the, the coup in Equatorial Guinea a few years ago. You may remember the headlines. But uh, anyway, welcome, James. Thanks very much. I, I, it's always good to start off with a description of my book as strange. <laughs> we, we can have a drop quote for, for the cover. Strange, a strange book. Strange, but but very, very, very interesting. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's a story that... I know fairly well because mm. I know you from several mm. places in the past. But, uh, yeah, it, it's very, very well known and it's a cracking story. But let's start off because it's a memoir with a little bit more mm. about you, you know, where you come from uh, and ultimately what led you to be in the situation to write this book. Yeah, it is fun. It is a, it is a memoir. Fundamentally, the book is a story about friendship. Um, it's about friendship in Africa under extremely difficult conditions and... You know, a lot of the book is devoted to, you know, um, African international current affairs. So we, you know, it dwells a lot in the Liberian civil war, 2002, 2003, the Equatorial Guinea coup plot. Um, But what I wanted to do was achieve something which is fundamentally different to um, just committing a straightforward act of journalism. I wanted to write something that people who weren't actually interested necessarily in the nitty-gritty of current affairs would find compelling and motivating. So I wrote it as a memoir. Essentially what the book describes um, is my relationship with um, a South African mercenary called Nick Detoy. Um, And it's, you know, the origins of of my friendship with him, how it developed and fundamentally what the consequences of that relationship were, both for him and for me. Um, and I, I wanted to write about friendship in war, because this really is, you know, most of this book is set one way or another at war, or in the aspiration of going to war, or in the aftermath of war. I wanted to write about friendship in war, um, because, you know, it's very, you know, having spent a long time on front lines been a long time in very active combat, um, seeing close quarter combat, filming it, um, photographing it, writing about it. Um, it's actually incredibly exclusive. It's a very difficult thing to convey to someone 
really who hasn't been there. Um, however successfully one thinks one's doing it, it's actually fundamentally alien. It's not normal to have someone to point a gun at you and try and kill you. And trying to explain what that like is very difficult at times. Um, and I, what, I wanted to kind of concentrate on my friendship with this South African mercenary because with Nick, because actually pretty much everyone has a best friend. And pretty much everyone's best friend at some time or another is going to have asked them to do something that they'd rather not do or they knew they shouldn't do, but they'll do it anyway because they're friends. And I think that's something that's universal, that's enduring. So however difficult some of the circumstances are that I'm writing about to understand perhaps in terms of you know what it's like to witness the... the the mechanics of an execution or torture, everyone understands the, 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 par- the parameters of friendship. And what I'm doing is essentially showing them under a very extreme condition. And you spoke then about the photography, the filmmaking, the other bits of journalism that you've done and that led mm. to this, uh, to, yeah. to all of these experiences in My Friend the Mercenary. Um, just go back a bit and, and tell me how mm. you got involved in, in, in this world of, of uh covering wars in bad bits of Africa? Yeah, I'd say um, there are, wars, are, wars are bad and, um, and they make bits of places bad. I wouldn't say that there are inherently bad bits of Africa. Um, Africa is afflicted by conflict in the way that other places are. Bit of are. journalism shorthand, yes, yeah. <laughs> bad bits of Africa. It's a bit like uh, you know, the yeah. dark continent or something. Um, Excuse me for using yeah. that anyway. But what I, what I would say is that um, uh, I'm... A television director and producer, so I, you know, I make um, uh, films for British television and for US television, um, and I, I film, produce, and direct them. That's what I do for a living now. And what this book really charts is my journey into that career and some of the people that I met along the way. When I was first starting out, I was a stills photographer. And shot reportage photographs. So I was um, trying to make my my name as a as a as a reportage photographer, and not terribly successfully. Um, I hasten to add. And um, I came across a story in West Africa, in Liberia. Um, I'd been photographing at the very end of the civil war in Sierra Leone in two thousand and one, and I met there some of the South African mercenaries who'd fought for the executive outcomes private army during the mid-90s in Sierra Leone, who'd then settled there subsequently. And I met some of them and stayed in touch with them. And one guy in particular, a guy called Cobus, um, he began telling me stories about another civil war that was going on in Liberia, um, that a group of rebels were trying to overthrow the then-president, Charles Taylor. But it was a war that was entirely unreported, no one had access to the rebel side. Very serious commentators disputed that it was happening at all. And there was almost no information about it. But Cobus was adamant that this fighting was taking place, quite large pitch battles. I mean, at that time, Sierra Leone had the largest deployment of United Nations peacekeepers on Earth, you know, about 17,500 um, air-supported combat troops in Sierra Leone. And these were battles which were allegedly taking place not more than 100 miles away from them. And yet... No one knew anything about it, nor was anyone doing anything to intervene in it. Um, and the reason that I, I found what I was being told credible was because um, Cobus, as well as being um, a former mercenary, 
and they'd also undertaken contracts on behalf of the US government and the US military in West Africa, in Liberia, for um, embassy evacuations and that kind of thing. And he was very clear that actually US intelligence were working very closely with the rebels, and he believed that um, both US intelligence and the rebels would be interested in some kind of media representation. And that's how this story really began. It was a sort of a, an extraordinary scoop. No one seems to know anything about. Um, so I began negotiating with Cobus. I wrote, you know, long formal letters of introduction to the rebel leadership to, to kind of press my case for going to meet them. Um, these letters were then handed over to the rebels and eventually um, they agreed and invited me in with the backing of US intelligence. And... Cobus made it very clear to me that I, I was suggesting going into an environment that was an active war zone, be completely cut off from the outside world. There was no communications infrastructure at all. Very little was known about the terrain, the logistics, and I would be operating, if I was meeting the rebels in rebel-held Liberia, in the north of the country, perhaps several hundred miles um, over the border and beyond the reach of um, anyone who might reasonably be expected to come and get me if there was a problem. So he suggested that I take a security advisor with me, a bodyguard, if you like, and um, said he had just the man um, for the job, um, which was the South African mercenary Nick Batoy. And Nick um, had been uh, a colonel in South Africa's um, apartheid-era army, um, he'd been a special forces operator and had been the founding father um, of a specific um, special forces group called Five Reconnaissance, Five Recce. Um, and Five Recce's exploits across southern Africa um, from 19, well, the, essentially the mid-1970s through to the early 1990s were uh, infamous and, um, as they were, shadowy. Uh, essentially, the sort of Five Recce was the South African apartheid state equivalent of the SAS, um, but they were not fundamentally accountable to a democratically elected government, really quite quite the opposite. Can I jump in yeah. there and just say, obviously, you're, you're dealing with people like Cobus and he's introducing you to people like Nick, and you know the background of these people. How does that make you feel? Do, does it make you feel as though you're having to be severely compromised? Does it... Is it just a bit of background that you just dismiss and say, right, let's concentrate on the present? Well, it's interesting, you see, because um, rather naively, when I first met Nick, um, I didn't know who he was at all. I was introduced to someone. But who, Co so Cobus hadn't told you exactly no, the background no, of this No, not guy. at okay. all. No, I was told he was a very experienced <clears> soldier <throat> and he was just the guy I needed. Um, I didn't know anything about his background or any details about him. Um, when I, Nick is an, an intensely ironically, an intensely personal and private man. So although he has um, really embraced the idea of having a book written about him, <laughs> but um, subsequently, um, now his life is somewhat different. Um, but um, no, I just knew I was meeting someone experienced who would look after me. And in the meeting, it became clear that Nick had been um, Cobus's senior officer in executive outcomes in Sierra Leone in the mid-90s. And in fact, Nick had been one of the sort of three senior field commanders for the whole mercenary operation. Mm -hmm. um, then it came out that he was experienced in various kinds of covert and overt warfare. Um, I didn't really know anything about the Reckies. 
Mm-hmm. And frankly, you know, not many people do really know very much about what Five Recce was up to outside of a few very specialist publications. Mm-hmm. So what impressed me about Nick was that he knew the terrain, he'd worked in the region, and he was also a very experienced combat medic. And that was mm-hmm. one of his specialities. So, you know, as far as I, I was concerned, I was going in with someone who would run logistics for me, run a medical evacuation, and that once we were in country, he would be armed, um, and that he would create enough space around me so that I could get clear if I needed to, and that I would have someone watching my back while I was able to get on with the job of filming. So... And it became... Is, on, the, sorry. On, so on location, it became clear quite rapidly that Nick's background was much more nuanced and complicated than I'd imagined. Uh, initially, so I, I mean, when I was brought up <clears throat> in London in, in, in the 70s, you know, the default position both at home and at school, was that, um, you know, the ANC and the uh, black um, liberation movements in southern Africa were exactly that. They were liberation movements who were heroes fighting against a tyrannical enemy. Um, And that, you know, Nazi Germany and the apartheid state in South Africa were morally equivalent. Mm. Um, All the way through to not not, not buying a cape... Uh, grapes when they appeared at the greengrocers. You know, yeah, exactly. This, this I mean, it was, was a whole, very common yeah, stance. Yeah, very common stance, right through the middle class, through the working class. I mean, everyone basically signed, apart from a few, you know, sort of crazy, um, you know, um, conservative youth members wearing Hang Mandela T-shirts. I mean, you know, the overwhelming... <laughs> Not to the- characterise anyone too, too, too harshly. But anyway, let, 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 yeah. let's jump forward, because mm. this, is the, this is the first half of the book, mm. basically. It is... Uh, I hesitate to call them adventures because well, they while they're extraordinary, sense. they're yeah. also very, very yeah. harrowing. Mm. Uh, some of the things that happen yeah. while you're tracking down, uh, it's the, the mm. Lurd uh, mm. army, they're the rebels, L-U-R-D, uh, with Nick, and it involves, uh, I mean, physically, it involves an enormous amount of hardship, just being able to get in country, get mm. close to these people, follow them along, uh, and then there's the the mental and psychological side, mm. and the two of you forge uh, an extraordinary friendship during this. Yeah, I mean there are a couple of things happening, um, you know, almost simultaneously. The first is that I went in, you know, I said I was a stills photographer, and I'd done a little bit of news production um, as well, but I and I didn't really understand what a news producer does, and I frankly still don't. Um, <laughs> I went, I went this is why you write books as well. <laughs> exactly. I went in as a producer, you know, and I took a cameraman in with me and a sound man and Nick the bodyguard, and that was, that, that was a big crew, and we had a three-week contract. Well, my, the cameraman, sound man, and Nick had a three-week contract um, to go in. It was independently funded by an independent production company. And after three weeks, we had got very, li- very little distance inside of Liberia at all, and we hadn't really filmed anything. And the cameraman and the soundman, who were both very ill from the journey already, and their contracts had expired, left. I mm-hmm. mean, up sticks and went. And rebels escorted them out of the country, and that was that. And they it as was Guinea that you ca- you entered through the north through Guinea. That's correct. Yeah, um, from near the border near Macenta, in 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 eastern Guinea, and as the cameraman left. He said, oh, well, here you go. And he gave me a mini-DV digital video camera, box of 20 tapes, a couple of spare batteries, a charger. Um, I said, good luck. And I'd never shot any TV pictures before. And Nick stayed on, obviously. Yeah. As he actually, as the cameraman got to the edge of the jungle, he turned around again because he'd forgotten to give me the instruction manual. 
And so Nick and I sat down and read the instruction manual to the camera. Because I was used to shooting stills. I'd never done anything with audio at mm-hmm. all. I had no idea how to shoot video. Um, so we worked it out between us. Nick stayed on. Um, then the, the production company went bust, effectively. And I had a very awkward conversation with them where they said, well, effectively, um, we can't afford to keep you there. So good luck. And by the way, we can't afford to pay Nick. So then I had this sort of incredibly awkward conversation with Nick, who by this point, you know, was in full reconnaissance regiment battle dress with an AK over his knees and 300 rounds of ammunition strapped to his chest. And, you know, mercenaries are as mercenaries do, and they get paid to go to war. So there's me standing in front of him saying, oh, by the way, we don't really know each other that well, and actually there's no money. And it was a bit of a defining Sorry, were you with Sorry, were you with the rebels by this point? Yes. Not? You were, yeah. You'd made contact. We made contact. And, really, and I... You know, they took us over the border in the first place. But you were nowhere near anything no, that no. could remotely be described as a front line, which is why you hadn't been able to do any filming. Exactly. We were several days' work, walk away from a front line. Um, and Nick said, look, you know, he made, he made a calculation, I think, <clears throat> if, you, if you don't film combat, you can't see the rebels in action. If you can't prove that these people actually pose a threat to Taylor's government, then you don't have a film. And I guess the calculation was for him that he would then never be paid. Um, but you know, he said, "Look, I'm gonna, I'll stay on. Mm-hmm. Let's just just do this for however long it takes." And it, in it, rather than taking three weeks, it took nearly three months. But the what happened almost immediately was that Nick got incredibly ill with dysentery mm-hmm. to the point where um, we'd lost our medical supplies on on route so far. He got so ill that I thought he died. Mm-hmm. And then he revived, and I, said, and I thought, God, you know, if this is flawed Nick, imagine what this would do to me. And then you swapped places. And we swapped places, and I, and I could feel myself sort of beginning to disintegrate um, internally. And um, I said, you know, Nick, have you ever, has this ever happened to you before? Because I'd had dysentery before, but I knew it was bad. And uh, he said, yeah, no, the only other time it was this bad was in Zimbabwe in 1985. And I said, oh... Hang on a minute. What were you doing in Zimbabwe in 1985? By which point, you know, Zimbabwe had been independent for five years. And he said, "Oh, you know, we were um, taking out a terrorist safe house in in Harare." So, for uh, for whom? For, essentially, it was part of you know there were a series of raids which special forces conducted on behalf of the apartheid government. Um, the very infamous raid on Gaborone being another one. Mm-hmm. Raid on Harare. Um, which Nick participated in, which essentially um, what he called terrorists um, were what I've grown up to call freedom fighters, in this case members of the ANC, mm-hmm. who, um, whose bases they destroyed, operatives they killed um, in, the, in the name of the apartheid state. And that, so as I was slipping into this sort of deep, um, deep traumatic illness, I sort of realised that the person with me was not just you know, a roughy tufty soldier. Um, but he was, he, he was a, a different order of soldier. He was someone who had conducted very controversial operations in defence of the apartheid state. Can, uh, I, can, I, can I just jump yeah. in here? I, I, I know that we need to crack on with the actual story itself, but, but this, um, this group of people who used mm. to 
conduct operations mm. for the South African Special Forces. Uh, they're a very interesting group, as you say. Some of them left and mm. formed organizations such as Executive Outcomes. They were involved elsewhere in the continent. Um, some of them are, are still living in, scattered mm. across, and some of them are black. This mm. is a, an extraordinary uh, group of people. I mean, how, uh, how did your thoughts about these people evolve? And, and what is the fate of some of these people? Have they gone back to apartheid, uh, to post-apartheid South Africa? Yeah, I mean, in the case of Nick specifically, I mean, my, my thoughts about him and his past evolved along extremely visceral personal lines. While I was recovering from dysentery, uh, to be brutally honest, I couldn't really stand up. So every time I wanted to go to the bathroom, Nick had to haul me outside and physically hold me over the latrine. And there's a, there's a point at which when, when another man has held you up by your wrists while you take a shit over a ditch, you're either mates or you're not. It doesn't mm. matter what he's done. And after that, Nick and I were mates. And we spent a long time then unravelling each other's personal histories by the time we eventually got down to the front line, and in the end, Nick and I walked ooh, well over 300 miles through primary jungle mm-hmm. um, in, in Liberia. By the time we got to the front line, we then spent a, around 30 days almost continuously in combat, and in, in the course of which he physically intervened and directly saved my life on two occasions. Mm-hmm. without which I would certainly have been killed. He dragged me out of the way of the path of a rocket-propelled grenade. Mm. Um, and while I filmed executions and torture and you know very close firefights in which people were being you know literally dropping around us, he kept me safe mm-hmm. insofar as it's possible to do in that location. And, that, and my friendship with Nick grew out of that crucible, if you like. If, if Nick and I met each other as, you know, in civilian life somewhere in South Africa, I doubt we'd even have had a conversation. But what happens in war, it's like it's a pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. It compresses what could take years to build up in the world, can take a matter of days or weeks to come to fruition under fire. And that's what happened to Nick and I. We, we We were friends out of necessity, but also through surviving adversity together. Mm-hmm. And we were surviving it together as well. You know, I mean, he nearly died mm. as, as well. So, I, so you so, came to terms with this, so, with this yeah. former... So I, 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 essentially, you know, I mean, whatever one may think about his past, whatever I thought about his past, the difference between Nick and I was that he'd fought for it. You know, it's his friends that died on the battlefield. It's his mates that got killed fighting, not mine. And I'm not South African. I don't come from that history. I have personal thoughts and feelings about it. But whatever Nick did, right or wrong, he had a right to his past and a right to come to terms with it himself without being judged by me. Have other people in South Africa, in the, in the Southern African nations, come to terms with people like him? and his black uh, former colleagues. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's very important, to, to an extent, you know, to an extent. I mean, the, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa went, uh, actually went a long way to resolving some of those conflicts, and more, I think, than a lot of people really give credit for on a personal level. Um, and Nick, by the way, was never called before the TRC. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the... <clears throat> The thing is, is that, you know, it, it was a sort of, it was a myth, really, that, that, that 
these were things which being, were being perpetrated only by white soldiers because there were a lot of black African soldiers involved. And one of the sort of kind of special groups of soldiers was the so-called Buffalo Battalion, 3-2 Battalion, who were it's kind of like South Africa's foreign legion that were made up with um, Angolan, Namibian um, black soldiers um, led by mainly white officers of Portuguese, South African, Namibian descent. And um, they ended up settling back in South Africa at the end of the apartheid era, uh, and they were sort of shunted off to an asbestos-ridden place called Pomfret uh, in the north of South Africa, where they were pretty much abandoned by the post-apartheid government um, as a, a, an embarrassment. And it's out of that community of people who never found legitimate work, really, in South Africa, who were the bedrock of foot soldiers to be recruited by other mercenary armies, such as executive outcomes or foot soldiers for the Equatorial Guinea coup um, plot army. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it bears remembering that the vast majority of soldiers who fought in executive outcomes were black Africans. Mm-hmm. Nick's five recce had a very large number of black South African troops in it. And that's actually something that's even denied or questioned even by South Africans today, but it's absolutely the case. You know, I mean, when Nick was on operations, most of the troops he was on operations with were, were black Africans. And he, it's, it's Nick's opinion, slightly controversially, that actually, in many ways, the South African army really set the agenda and led the pace for integration in South Africa because apartheid was dismantled in the army much faster than it was anywhere else in South African society. And the army's model came from special forces, where it was dismantled almost immediately. There, there in fact, wasn't an operational system of apartheid in South African special forces um, on a social or operational level. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, and to go back to one of the other characters that we've mentioned, there's Cobus Klaassens. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, I, I, I met Cobus when mm-hmm. I was in Sierra Leone. Uh, I think you introduced us. Um, And uh, we did touch upon some of these things. I was making a Mm. a documentary for the BBC at the time. Mm. And he he said that uh, the the post-apartheid system scared people like him Mm. quite severely. You know, Mm. they're really worried about what was going to happen and were very, very pleasantly surprised by the amount of reconciliation that was possible. And he Mm. credited the leadership of people like de Klerk and Mm. Mandela, but also the kind of pragmatism that allowed people to say, right, well, we do have different histories. Mm. Uh, I certainly don't agree with yours. You certainly don't agree with mine, but we can move forward. And it was was a different point of view that I had not heard from anyone else, Mm. especially involved in Mm. in something as visceral as what happened in in the apartheid Mm. struggle in South Africa. I mean, the Afrikaners um, are kind of Africa's great survivors in in a way. Um, However controversial their past is, however, you know, deeply reprehensible a lot of it's been. um, They've, you know, this is a people that have survived, you know, being surrounded by, um, and one may argue for good reason, but surrounded by, you know, tribes um, like the Khosa who were, you know, bent on their destruction who lived sort of on nothing in the desert, um, survived, you know, an arguably genocidal campaign at the hands of the British Army during the Boer War, and somehow managed to keep going. Um, there's a, an Afrikaans expression, Boer Mokken Plan, which is a farmer makes a plan. 
And I think that's what a lot of, of um, Afrikaners did at the end of apartheid, was they made a plan. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we're going to somehow will survive. And, you know, people like Nick left the army. They saw no future for themselves in the army. And they joined private armies instead. They had a mm-hmm. wealth of, you know, these are people who were operational. I mean, operational from 1975 through to the early 90s. Mm-hmm. That's, there, was, there, were, there was no one, there was no NATO standard army on earth that had a similar amount of operational and combat experience as South African troops. Mm-hmm. And they H- con- hence their involvement involvement in the type of things we've been talking about. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, just to just just to sort of close this chapter of the book, um, mm. you ended up being able to to get material out, uh, mm. make a film of it, hopefully pay Nick, <laughs> and uh, and it, it was judged a success. I mean, you you managed to get you know as you say a, a first a next rung up the ladder of a of a producer director. Um, making films. Yeah, out, um, out of Liberia the, the, in 2002, that first mm-hmm. trip, I made my first film for TV. Um, you know, looking back on it, mm-hmm. uh, it's a bit of a dog's dinner. But I'm, you know, very proud of it in, in that it told a story that no one else told. Mm-hmm. And off the back of it, um, yeah, Nick and I were paid an incredibly small amount, um, <laughs> I have to say. And... Um, it's called Suffering for Art. It's called, it's just, well, I think it's just called Suffering. No one in their right mind could call that art. Um, but it led to another commission and then to another commission. So it, it mm-hmm. developed a pattern of Nick and I working together. Okay. And we effectively spent the next 12 to 18 months um, at war in West Africa mm-hmm. together. Okay. And then the second part of the book is the... is is. It's almost a change of pace in the mm. book because you have this extraordinary mm. and extraordinarily harrowing story of, of the two of you, mm. um, you know, falling ill, being shot at, saving, mm. you know, etc. in Liberia. And then the second part of the book, it's, it's almost like a forensic account of something that happened that you didn't know what was happening and then you were caught up in it and you look back and you think, goodness me, what an extraordinary adventure. And you, you almost set out... Mm. Uh, this as a as a definitive account of, from your point of view, of a coup that almost took place in Equatorial Guinea. Um, it's a very complex complex story. Can you give us the simple version of, of of what happened to you and this coup? Yes, it's as definitive as it's possible to, possible to be without being sued. Okay, that's and that's thing. another thing Is that it? we're going to be very careful about. Um, but um, yes. Essentially what happened was that um, while we were waiting to go back to the front line outside of um, Monrovia, the capital of um, Liberia, um, Nick and I were having uh, rather a lot of beers in um, a bar in in Guinea, uh, in Conakry. And um, Nick told me about um, uh, a job job offer that he'd been made, um, which was um, that he'd been asked to help overthrow... um, a government in West Africa in order to install a new president who would cooperate with the oil industry um, and that um, that country's oil reserves would then be used to pay for the mercenary operation and make the people who'd 
launched the operation very rich. This is straight out of the straight yeah. out of the, the comic book view of what white mercenaries in South Africa got up to for, yeah. for a couple of it's decades. A pretty straightforward thing. And essentially, um, what what Nick said was originally to me, um, you know, it's a it's a small place, lightly defended, fabulously rich in oil. Um, we're going to take out the president. Classic mercenary-led seizure of power. Would you like to come come along and film it? Did he mention where this was? No. Okay. Would you like to come along and film it? So I said, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously. I would <clears throat> um, and I said, well, is it, is it Guinea-Bissau? Mm-hmm. And he said, no, wrong direction. Well, in that really small oil-rich countries yes. in West Africa, it's going to be it's either Sao Tome or it's Equatorial Guinea. There isn't really anywhere else. Well, Gabon um, has quite a bit. Gabon, you know. Yeah, but, but yes, it's kind Equatorial of, yeah. Guinea is standing. Yeah, it's like it's it's out there. And given, can, can, you know, can we quickly have a, a picture of what uh, Equatorial Guinea is like as a country, just um, very quickly? Well, it became it became very clear that the target was Equatorial Guinea. Um, Equatorial Guinea is a small country in West Africa, which is fabulously rich in oil. The main bit of the country um, where the capital is, is an island called Bioko, mm-hmm. which sits in the Bight of Benin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's just um, south um, of Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And um, then there's a mainland bit of the country as well, which is um, tiny. north of, of um, Gabon. It's tiny. Absolutely mm-hmm. tiny. It's also Africa's third largest oil producer. Which for a small country means that there's a lot of money coming in, but it's a fairly typical picture of what happens to the money once it comes in. Yes, because the go- the, uh, the government of um, Equatorial Guinea, even by some of the worst excesses of um, African dictatorships, um, is, is up there at the top. It's governed by a man called... Um, uh, President um, uh, Teodoro Obiang. Obiang himself came to, to um, power in a coup in 1979 where he overthrew and then executed his own uncle. Um, it's run as an autocratic one-party state um, with the financial reserves of the country um, going in cash straight into um, his pockets. Um, it became clear in a Senate investigation in America that the Obiang family had been using the Riggs Bank in Washington to deposit very large sums of money um, uh, in which they would turn up with suitcases stuffed with $100 bills. Um, The investigation into Riggs over this um, eventually forced um, the collapse of Riggs Bank and um, uh, and their, their Mm-hmm. No questions asked. Policy being censured. It also turned out in the process that Riggs was the bank of Augusto Pinochet and the CIA. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, and several members of the bank's um, uh, staff had high-level CIA clearance. So, uh, so did our pose a few questions about you know the company in which Obiang's money was being kept in. But anyway, um, the idea essentially was that there was an exile, a political exile, to Obiang. Um, in um, Spain, um, called Severa Moto, and that um, the coup plotters wanted to remove Obiang from power, either by killing or keep capturing him, um, and install Moto in his place, and that the Equatorial Guinea um, government 
would in fact then be run as an enduring business concern by the coup plotters who would then be directly profiting themselves from Equatorial, Equatorial Guinea's oil revenues. So essentially what they wanted to do was not just overthrow the government, but they wanted to seize contractual control of the country and all of its assets in the way that a lot of the freebooting companies in um, the 19th century did on behalf of Western powers. For example, the East India Company um, mm -hmm. effectively running British possessions in India on behalf of the Crown. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very similar model to that. Mm -hmm. um, it would effectively what they wanted to do was to reduce Equatorial Guinea um, to a sort of vassal-like status. Mm -hmm. um, so when you heard that it was Equatorial Guinea and you knew about President Dobiang, that might have solved part of your conscience about whether this was a bad thing or not. But well, this is not exactly a model that was it, was... it wasn't set up for the Equatorial Guinea people. No. I mean, the, 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 the government of Equatorial Guinea was and remains um, a brutal, violent, disgusting anachronism that has absolutely no place in the modern... Um, family of nations um, you know I mean the, the average standard of, of living in, in Equatorial Guinea is, is you know, on a par to countries like Sierra Leone and Liberia mm -hmm. um, which have absolutely no oil revenue and the average life expectancy in Equatorial Guinea is only marginally higher than it was in Liberia during the civil war mm -hmm. I mean it's, there is you know, healthcare communications, power, lighting. I mean, it's all virtually non-existent. Mm -hmm. um, however much of a PR job the president has tried to do in recent years. So, but when I was first pitched this by, by Nick, it was, in, it was a sort of two-stage thing, really. Firstly, I was asked, you know, we are going to do a beachhead operation, take over this country. Would you like to film it? Yes. And then he said, right, well, see, the thing is, that actually what we want to do um, is install this new president and have him filmed surrounded only by black troops with no white faces available on camera. So it looks like he is being put into power by a spontaneous local uprising and not by um, a mercenary-led seizure of power. You are crossing the line here between yeah. journalism and yeah. being the PR yeah. agency for, for the white mercenaries. Yeah, essentially what he wanted to do was have me film the coup as a propaganda broadcast for the coup plotters mm -hmm. to help the new regime get legitimacy and recognition, principally from Nigeria. And that in turn for agreeing to do this... Um, I could then just sort of keep filming and eventually release my own documentary of the true story of the coup once everyone had been in place and had been given diplomatic passports and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, and this I mean, is a, a straightforward, you know, moral dilemma. On the one hand, as a journalist, it's unthinkable that I could agree to broadcast propaganda. On the other hand, Nick's offering me, I mean, the opportunity of a lifetime, mm -hmm. really, and also, it's, a, it's an event that would shape the lives of tens of thousands of people on the continent. And without someone on the inside to film it, an independent voice inside, their story would just never get told. Mm -hmm. the, the story of the coup would never really have been told. So I had this sort of decision of like either like a moral knee-jerk reaction to this, which I just don't do it, 
and we never know, or I agree and somehow get the real story out eventually. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I agreed to go along with it and do it. Um, but because of what happened next, it for years it wasn't possible for me to tell the, the true story of the coup because Nick's life was at risk. Let's get on to that now. And, and fundamentally what this book does, this, the, the last third of this book is if you like a squaring of the accounts and it recounts as faithfully and accurately all of the details of the coup um, that I'm legally able to print. Okay. Let's have a a legal and relatively brief account of what happened next. Well, it turned out that the people who'd asked um, Nick to help overthrow the government of Equatorial Guinea was in fact... um, looked like a reunion of um, executive outcomes... Um, led by Simon Mann, a uh, former um, Etonian guards officer who had been one of the leading lights behind... And e- SAS officer. Executive outcomes. He'd been an, uh, an officer in G-Squadron SAS for a very short period of time. Right. Um, and he, um, he was putting together this operation in conjunction with uh, other financiers and backers... Um, who wanted to overthrow the government for their own personal financial gain. There was a good deal of um, moral justification used um, in this, um, that they were sort of ridding the continent of a vile despot and that it was going to be great for the people of Equatorial Guinea. But fundamentally, the baseline motivation to do this, as I've said, is hard cash. Um, a plot was put together. The personnel were brought together. Um, The operation was launched. Uh, It failed. It was launched again. And on the second attempt, um, everybody involved was arrested. Um, The vast bulk of mercenaries, um, 67 of them, were detained and arrested in Zimbabwe, where they were attempting to purchase weapons before flying onto Equatorial Guinea. And then a smaller group of 15, led by Nick, who were the vanguard already in Equatorial Guinea, were rounded up by the authorities there. Nick and his men um, were given very harsh sentences. Nick ended up serving um, nearly six years in Black Beach Jail, one of Africa's worst, most notorious um, penitentiaries. And Simon Mann um, and the others started their sentences in Chikarubi Maximum Security Prison in Zimbabwe. Most were released after 18 months. Simon was then transferred to Equatorial Guinea and served out the remainder of his sentence there before he and Nick were both released together. And in the meantime, you're in touch with, for instance, Nick's family. And you were trying to unpick what had gone wrong because one Mm. thing that comes out in the book is that given how professional these guys were and their background, Mm. things didn't seem to be particularly well organised. A friend of mine... um, who was recently demobbed from the SAS, um, described the operation as an astonishing catalogue of buffoonery, um, which I think is being kind. Mm. Um, It's an absolute unmitigated farce. And I've been through this in great detail with Nick, and the reasons for the failure of this operation are legion. Um, Mainly, it was infiltrated, root and branch, by South African intelligence who 
representatives of whom initially um, supported the coup um, and then were responsible for shopping it. Mm. You're picking your words very carefully with a lot of this. Yeah, well, it's very clear that um, people who were working on behalf of the South African Secret Service um, told Simon that, um, you know, this coup was good to go, that they were supported and that they were themselves participating in it. Um, Now, subsequently, that's been portrayed as being a sting operation that was deliberately set up to catch Simon. And and that's clearly true. So um, South African Secret Service had infiltrated the plot um, at a very high level and had then made sure that it was foiled. On the other hand, we also know that senior intelligence representatives from South Africa had meetings with um, Severo Motto, the exiled Equato-Ghanaian political leader in Madrid, um, and had discussed with him what a post-coup Equatorial Guinea might look like. And I think initially there was quite a lot of bet hedging going on to see what might happen. And in the end, they came down very firmly against the coup. Um, But the coup plotters were left with the impression that they were good to go. Mm -hmm. Very naively. You know, here's Simon saying to people he knows are working for the South African Secret Service, oh, this is what I'm doing, is it okay? And when they don't tell him to stop, he assumes, oh, everything must be fine. It's rather like going up to a policeman and saying, would you mind if I break this jeweler's window and steal that diamond necklace? And when the policeman doesn't say anything and you smash and grab and get arrested, you're suddenly surprised and filled with self-righteous indignation. I mean, it's mm. completely preposterous. But on a more fundamental level... Um, the original operation for the coup was predicated on uh, a Congolese rebel group seizing control. <clears throat> Excuse me. The original plan for the, for the coup was predicated on a group of Congolese rebels seizing control of an airstrip um, in Kolwezi, in Katanga, in southern Congo, where the mercenaries would then fly in, a separate plane with the weapons would fly in. The, um, they'd cross-load the weapons and men onto one aircraft, the rebels would be given some weapons as a payoff and then the mercenaries would fly on. Mm-hmm. And that entire operation was based around one so-called rebel leader who was going to facilitate it and make it happen. Not only did that rebel army not exist, mm-hmm. they were an absolute invention of one man's mind, um, that man also turned, to be, turned out to be an informer for South African intelligence. Mm-hmm. So right from the very outset, um, there was simply no way operationally that this could have succeeded because it was just fundamentally compromised from the outset. So I was supposed to go along and film this and I was on 48-hour standby to get on the plane. And my grandfather, who partly raised me... um, Became, was terminally ill with cancer and mm-hmm. gone into the final stages of his, of his, um, of his disease and then, and then died. And during the period of mourning, of arranging his funeral, of me being with my family, is exactly when the coup was launched. So my grandfather's death stopped me from getting on the plane. Mm-hmm. 
which is why Nick went to jail and I didn't. And Nick's now been released. Nick was released uh, five months... Sorry. Nick was released five years and eight months after being arrested in Equatorial Guinea. What kind of state was he in and what kind of state was the friendship in, given how you'd almost been caught up in what seems to have been a, uh, a fairly buffoonish plot? Yeah, I mean... When Nick was released, he'd lost 40% of his body weight. Um, he'd been systematically tortured uh, for years. He'd been kept bound hand and foot for almost the entire period of incarceration in, in jail. Originally, when he'd been shackled, the um, shackles had been so tight, they cut down to his bone through his wrist and his ankles. Um, he nearly died of cerebral malaria. Um, he was kept in a five-by-seven cell, tied hand and foot, um, in the pitch black in solitary confinement, had to eat scraps of food off the floor. Um, so when he came out, he was a very, you know, he was subjected to mock executions on a daily basis for weeks um, by drunk prison officials. So in very bad shape physically when he came out, but apparently in very strong condition mentally. Um, whilst he was in jail, he went through... Um, a not un, untypical um, conversion to Christianity. He found God and and through the Bible, which is his only reading material really, um, believed that he'd sort of found the way to see the error of his ways um, and remains a, a committed Christian on, on being released. He's mm. sort of very quiet about it. It's a very sort of, it's a very simple faith, but clearly one that got him through. Um but uh, the thing I found interesting about Nick when he was released was that he was he was genuinely repentant. You know, it wasn't his repentance wasn't framed in sort of religious cliches. He, he said straightforwardly, "What we tried to do was wrong," and he's the only person involved in that whole enterprise. Not Simon Mann, not Eli Khalil, not Mark Thatcher. None of these people have stood up and said, "Yeah, actually, this was wrong." And and, and Nick, it, I think it's very important that whatever Nick's past was, whatever he did, whatever he tried to do, fundamentally, he was able, after nearly six years in Africa's worst jail, to come out and say, "We just got this wrong." Mm -hmm. This story has a lot of themes that that need not be African. You know, hmm. the friendship, the, uh, you know, the, the slightly naive, perhaps, young reporter who, hmm. who gets involved in something. I'm sure that if you read, if your mother read this book before you'd actually started doing it, you would not have been anywhere near Liberia, let alone Equatorial Guinea. Uh, and then this, this uh, you know, near catastrophe and redemption of, of your friend, as you've just hmm. described it. Is it a story that could only come out of Africa? Is it a very African setting? I think it is actually. I think it's a. I think it's a profoundly African setting in terms of the mechanics of what happens. Um, simply because, you know, Africa is. It's one of the. It's a. It's a strange place. You know, it's a. It's a. It's a wonderful, beautiful, crazy, cruel, and deeply idiosyncratic and eccentric environment to to, to work and live in. And I think one of the defining things about this book is that Nick, a white man descended from European farming stock, is an African. Mm -hmm. 
and President Obiang is an African. Cobus Clarsons is an African. They have nowhere else to go but the continent. That's their home. And however difficult that might be for us to digest from a European point of view, but less so for you, given your long experience of, of living and working on the mm-hmm. continent, it's fundamentally, you know, it's not, it's not really a story about white people and black people and about, you know, Europeans and, and Africans. It's a story about Africans. Um, and, you know, even Simon was a South African citizen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very, it's a, it's a quirky story. The themes, mm-hmm. friendship, love, redemption, of course, they're universal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely universal. But fundamentally what happened here was that one group of Africans, led by Nick, fundamentally misunderstood another group of Africans, led by the South African Secret Service and the Aquato Ghanaians. Mm-hmm. I think what happened here was that Nick, Simon... Um, the organisers failed to appreciate the distance that the continent has travelled since their last great mercenary expedition with executive outcomes in the Mm mid-90s, which was, by any measure, a success. Mm -hmm. Saved the lives of probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, Um, albeit for financial gain, but the results speak for themselves. They'd fundamentally fail to realise Africa is just a different place. And they got outfoxed, outsmarted and outwitted by a group of people that they gave no credence to at all. Mm. I just want to go back to the journalism side. Mm. One one last main question on that, and that is that um, journalists are often accused of portraying a, a rather oversimplistic picture of Africa, not not mm. really getting to the to grips with what with what yeah. the continent is about. Um, your contribution to this is a little bit more complex. Um, mm. Do you think your uh, book, your experiences, your films that you've made about this uh, kind of feed the stereotype or challenge the stereotype? I hope it challenges it. Um... Really, I mean, what I partly what I strive to do is, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm recounting parts of this are brutal, mm-hmm. and you know, this is you know a, a brutal civil war. The first two thirds of the book are taken up with, you know, executions, murders, mutilations. I mean, definitely, um, but they're of public interest. These are now subject to war crimes tribunal mm-hmm. inquiries. This is evidence. Um, it's not purient um, rubbernecking. This is this is the, the fundamental basis upon which you know um, international law scrutinises international events is by journalists writing this 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 draft of, of history. Um, what I wanted to do was look at matters which were in the public interest. You know, I the idea that you know only bad news comes out of Africa is fundamentally missing the point. You know, when did you ever hear any news broadcast that starts off with, you know, Mr. Jones, 35 Acacia Avenue, wakes up, great day, goes to work, loves his wife, it's all brilliant, comes home, kisses his kids, goes to bed, happy man. You know, great. That might be the default position for, you know, 80% of the world's population or whatever, but it's not news. Right? A rebel army that's being funded by the American government that's cutting the heads off of prisoners, 
that's news because somewhere in there is going to be my tax dollars or your tax dollars. And that's important because that means as an electorate we have the capability to change things. We have the mm -hmm. capability to hold people to account who are doing that. And if we don't know about it, we can't hold them to account. So what I wanted to do was, you know, straightforward act of journalism. It's informational. But I wanted to, to explore how journalism happens. Because there is this sort of pervasive myth, and it's particularly strong in America, I have to say, um, where this book has not been universally applauded, that... Um, you know, somehow, according to the sort of liberal um, journalistic media establishment, journalists, particularly war correspondents, are supposed to be neutral, um, objective observers. And I, it's just, it's not I only... I haven't met many of those. So not, not only is that a lie, it's a very pernicious and unhelpful lie. My own personal feeling is that if you are involved in the mechanics of reporting war there will come a point at which you necessarily need to exercise your own natural and inalienable right of self-defence. And the point at which you exercise that right is the point at which you become a participant and not an observer. It's impossible to be a neutral and objective reporter of war. And that, for me, is an irrelevant sidetrack. What's important for me is to understand the paucity of objectivity, but also then to make sure that what is being presented is nonetheless credible and authentic. Mm -hmm. And it's that which is appropriate. Simply because something is, simply because the observer is involved in a process doesn't mean that the product is necessarily incredible or somehow not authentic mm -hmm. you know and it's, it's watching out for that that's key i think the debate's been framed wrongly and i you know this book it's about a lot of different things mm -hmm. and you know there are people in this book who committed atrocities rebel commanders who executed prisoners who showed me great personal kindness and courtesy who shared the last of their rations with me shared the last of their cigarettes with me, talked openly and frankly about, you know, their girlfriends, their wives, their kids, their life at home, who would, you know, laugh with me and slap me on the back before shooting prisoners at point-blank range the next morning. And what I wanted to do is to, to try and look at some of the complexities of human behaviour that go on in war. Mm -hmm. You know, what actually does war consist of? And it's... I think very important to understand this is not African savagery. A generation ago, highly civilised people in Western Europe um, two generations ago, highly civilised people in Western Europe were shoveling the remains of people out of gas ovens mm. whilst listening to uh, opera and reading Goethe. Mm -hmm. right? It's what happened in the Liberian Civil War in comparison to the wars that have been fought in mainland Europe, insignificant, mm -hmm. absolutely insignificant. What I wanted to do was explore the fact that people behave as individuals even in the theatre of war mm -hmm. and that if people are individually accountable for their actions and can show empathy, then perhaps 
they are redeemable. And that, that's why I think it's so important that Nick re- expressed remorse and regret because it shows that the journey that he's on um, is one fundamentally that improves him and people who participate in war as a human being. Mm-hmm. James, I mean, it's an extraordinary story. And what impresses me is the way it's written. It, it, it's, it's written as mm. something that you just want to keep turning the pages. Mm. Uh, and it almost feels as though it's got the pace of a far less serious book. Mm. But underlying this, as we've mm. just been saying, there's, there's all of these big themes behind um, and a very, very personal Mm. um experience uh which we've gone into so uh, i can only commend you for writing the book and i just want to to end this on a on a traditional uh question what are you working on now i'm currently working uh on a political investigation mm-hmm. um, in the uk mm-hmm. um, and i'm also just beginning uh, my next book my... any clues um next book is will deal with themes around belief, why people believe um, in things which are apparently um, intangible and what it causes them to do. You're not scared of the big big subjects, are you? No, no, no. <laughs> um, I say one of the things about um, my friend the mercenary, at the risk of, you know, sounding, you know, a little off-reservation... Um, Throughout the brutality of it and throughout the, 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 the tragedy of, of the death and the fighting in the book and man's in, the documenting of man's inhumanity to man in, in the jungle in Liberia, um, there's another theme in there, which is something that my, um, my father's father um, would often talk to me about, who was a professional soldier. And he said that actually he didn't regret any of his experiences at war because fundamentally war was the only area of sort of modern activity in which men were allowed to express unconditional love for one another. And I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at war, you know, as well as the kind of the murder and the hate and disgust. Actually, what war brings is a lot of love between between people and it expressed in ways which, which isn't in any other sphere of human activity. And I think that's essentially what happened between, between Nick and I was that, in, that we had saved each other's lives, we'd been through a defining experience, was that that, that was something that was very prevalent, that I, I fundamentally, actually, as well as being able to hate each other at war, men are able to love each other too. And I, what my next project looks at is what happens when you invest that love in something which is intangible and ultimately destructive. We'll keep a lookout for it, and uh, at least then we'll mm. perhaps understand a little bit more about what, <laughs> what the book is really about. But thank you, James. Pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with James Brabazon, the author of My Friend the Mercenary. I'm Nicholas Walton, the presenter of New Books in African Studies. Have a great week.